This is Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. One of the things I enjoy most with these podcasts is interviewing CBF staff. And I, I, I do a lot of it because we've got such a great and diverse staff. Today, Bart Jager's with me. Bart's been a longtime CBF staff member, been involved in the education program. Uh, he's now working on taking out adults and VIPs to give them a, a, an adult education experience on the Bay. Bart, welcome. Thank you for having me. Tell, tell us a little bit about your background. Washington College grad, as are many CBF staff members. That's true. I, uh, I grew up outside of Annapolis in Crofton and always just did much better outside. <laughs> class, uh, class was... You and me both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think a lot of people here would say that. Uh, but most of, my, most of my formative years in terms of being outside in the water in the bay were... We're right here in Annapolis. Uh, I had a godmother who lived on Lake Ogleton and Bay Ridge, and uh, I spent a lot of time fishing and crabbing and hunting with with my dad and other relatives. So, really started at a young age, really getting my feet wet and muddy, and uh, I've been lucky enough to pursue that as a career. So, uh, I've been with CBF now for almost, I guess, going on my 21st year. So uh, a lot of that spent, uh, the lion's share of that spent in our education department, working with students uh, at a lot of our different education centers from the James River to Fox Island to uh, Meredith Creek here in Annapolis. So a lot, of, a lot of different places in between. You know, as an aside, <clears throat> when you men- mentioned hunting and fishing, it just always occurs to me and, and hits me as to how much hunters and fishermen and women return to conservation what they know they need to give. I mean, it, it, it so directly connects to those of you, and I'm not one of them, who, who are good hunters and fishermen and women. You're right. It is, you know, you're intrinsically connected to the resource, whether it's between something that you're catching for a meal or whether you're just out there enjoying the beauty of a, of a wetland on a, a cold December morning or whether it's a nice fishing afternoon by the Bay Bridge, those those resources really are the reason we're out there. So, it, the, like you said, the conservation ethic that is born out of those sporting events is is instilled in a lot of those sportsmen from an early age. Really is, really yeah. is. So your first several years, probably fifteen, were working with kids in the education program, and, and as we say, adults uh, as well, because teachers and even principals uh, take part in our education uh, programs. And I guess what last four or five years has it been? You've been working with a sort of different clientele. Correct. So I moved from working primarily with students and, and teachers, and, and like you said, principals. To working with a lot of our different funding partners and, and a lot of our VIPs and adults specifically. So it's been a change in responsibility, but uh, continues to be rewarding. Uh, and it always amazes me that the level of uh, understanding that we still need to get across to, to the public about what's going on out here and what's happening, how vital some of the programs are that uh, we, uh, we provide, but also that 
uh, a lot of the different state and federal ages, agencies provide. It's it's pretty important to get folks involved and out there and hands-on. So You can write a lot of reports, and we certainly do. Put out <laughs> a lot of data, a lot of content on websites, on digital, on social media. But there's nothing like getting people on the bay, getting critters in the boat, looking at grasses, which I want to talk about a little mm -hmm. bit more in depth, pardon the pun, but... <laughs> no, you're right. I, an afternoon or a morning or a day or multiple days spent with someone where you are out in the resource and on it and touching it and feeling it really does provide a lifetime of understanding as opposed to just reading a one-page yeah. report. Equally valuable, but uh, for a lot of the folks that I work with now that... Uh, we are asking for support that are supporting the environment or supporting Chesapeake Bay Foundation, having them out in the resource is valuable. Yeah, whether they be donors, uh, legislators, agency heads, things like that, you've, you've taken them all out. And um, you recently did a short video, Grasses Equal Crabs, I believe, <laughs> was the call. And it's, it's on our website, on uh, our Facebook page, if anybody wants to see it. But you are, you are bringing home this direct connection between underwater bay grasses, which are starting to come back now, probably as healthy baywide as they've been in decades, and the number of, gra of uh, crabs. Give it's, us a little bit of that background. So and I, think this is, I think this is the fifth year in a row that we've seen an increase in total overall underwater grass acreage throughout the bay. And our crab population waxes and wanes due to different, uh, different things happening through the bay. Uh, whether can it's be harvest. weather, can exactly. be uh, crabs getting blown too far out in the ocean when they're in their juvenile stages. Yeah. Exactly. So there's, you know, you have crabs are always, uh, an old waterman I worked with who was making crab pots one day said, nobody knows nothing about crabs. <laughs> <laughs> they just come and they go, and that's all we know, which I don't want to say is exactly right, but it, it is, uh, they're a tricky species to really nail down. But the, without habitat, without that really vital underwater grass habitat, you're simply not going to have the total volume of crabs that the bay potentially can have. It's, it's a pretty simple uh, equation. Uh, and and crabs, crabs are short-lived, they're very well suited to an estuary like Chesapeake Bay because they do grow to market size very quickly. They can withstand a lot of differences in salinity and temperature, um, but they are extremely variable because of all these different things which go into whether a population uh, in a year class succeeds or not. But as you say, if they don't have places to hide, when they're in their soft stage, when they're molting, or when they're small, staying away from predators, that we know is a big impact. And so as you get people out and you're, you're in the grass beds, you're pulling it up, you're seeing a lot of life. Exactly. I was, I was recently down in the Tangier Sound last week with a group, and we were in the grass beds, and the amount of organisms that were in those grass beds including crabs, is, is simply amazing. It's, it's, you know, just to say that grasses are this vital habitat uh, just scratches the surface of how vital they are to the, to the total ecosystem from, 
you know, small amphipods and isopods and small little shrimp all the way up to your large predators. That same grass bed where I was catching very small macroinvertebrates, a fisherman told me he caught two 50-pound red drum <laughs> the night before. So you're talking about top predators all the way down to the lowest uh, creatures on the food chain. One, so. one critter that you often catch in the grass beds that people many times don't believe when I tell them but are seahorses. Seahorses look just like what the iconic image of a seahorse does, but they're only about an inch and a half or two inches. Yeah, they're, yeah I've seen them from a half inch all the way up to maybe three inches yeah. is about the biggest one. But puffer fish, two different species of puffer fish in the bay, several different species of flatfish, including flounder and hog chokers, uh, like I said, the drum and sea trout, all these different creatures are at some point in their life cycle utilizing those underwater grasses for uh, whether it is rearing young, whether it's coming to find food, whether it is, you know, in the case of crabs, whether it's trying to hide from predators, the grasses just provide simply some of the best habitat the bay has to offer. And one of the places you like to take people is the Susquehanna Flats up at the mouth, the, the, the headwaters of the Chesapeake, at the mouth of the Susquehanna River, grass beds that were totally wiped out by Tropical Storm Agnes in 1972. A lot of the scientists thought they'd never come back, and um, they're back in force. They're coming back beautifully. And you're, not only are they coming back in terms of acreage, but they're coming back in terms of diversity of species, mm. which is, is something I don't want the, the value of that to be lost in this conversation. Having species diversity in those grass beds is really important because they all sprout and seed and flower at different times of the year. They grow at different rates. They provide different food for migrating waterfowl, but their you know, species diversity in a singular grass bed is really important to its longevity and its overall health. So, uh, yeah, the Susquehanna Flats are coming back. I don't think they're back, but they're in the process. But we are seeing some really impressive species diversity as well. And, and tell us a little bit about the importance of clear water. That's critical. I mean, we, we all studied in uh, high school and biology the concept of photosynthesis. Yeah, it, we're talking about plants. So the, those plants need sunlight. And so without the ability of those plants to photosynthesize and get sunlight to grow and, and to uh, expand their range, you're just not going to have a healthy grass bed. So when you have cloudy situations in the water column, say after a storm or after uh, a big event where a lot of sediment is coming in, or just, too much algae. Or too much or algae, too, exactly. Simply too much algae. Uh, the grasses simply can't grow, and they won't grow. And that then leads to those grass beds not being as healthy as they possibly could. So water clarity is imperative when we're talking about underwater grasses. How, how, what's the deepest you've seen grasses grow in the bay in all the years you've been out there? I remember one spot we... we we're in about eight feet of water and we pulled up some grasses and they were uh, the grasses themselves were 
probably six and a half feet long from from root to the tip. But that means the sun, the, the clarity of the water was at eight feet uh, because they had to start. Exactly. So, it, it, yeah, they were they were growing early. It was an early starting species. And so water clarity exactly was was in the seven to eight foot range, which is remarkable. One of, yeah, one of the things people um, seem surprised when I talk about it, but how much water clarity is a critical measure of how much water clarity is really a measure of how clean the water is, how uh, uh, it doesn't have too much sediment, it doesn't have too much algae, and this is directly attributable to pollution and to runoff from land. Certainly, and, and a lot of the upstream work that Chesapeake Bay Foundation does and other organizations are doing addressing those sediment sources and those agricultural runoff sources at the source are, are really vital to maintaining that water clarity downstream. If we can stop those pollutants at their source, then the overall load going into the bay and those rivers uh, really leads to some pretty fantastic water clarity. And we've seen that in the last two years. People that have fished the bay their lifetimes were, were talking about how remarkable the water clarity was over some of the about the last two years. So, so this spring, though, more rain than I've seen in a long time. What are you seeing out there? You're seeing there's been a little bit of a delay in some growth in in certain areas, and that might be attributable to temperature and also just freshwater runoff issues. And grasses are kind of like crabs in a way too. And sometimes they'll be in one place one year and not in another with almost no clear distinction as to what the difference was. Exactly. Yeah. You, I don't want to say they move, but certainly grass beds will grow differently from year to year. Some of the really big, dense, super healthy ones are, are going to come back almost identical but in certain areas, you do see some start at one point, and you know, the next year they might not be there. But and, and the 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 annual survey, which is done by scientists on the bay and done with remote sensing, I, I, I've heard that it's one of the most precisely accurate surveys of any metric we measure on the bay. Is always a year in arrears, because they have to assemble all the data and map it and put it together. So you've been out, uh, here it is in the middle of June, you've been out uh, for uh, all spring. Are you seeing some variability? Certainly, yeah. Some spots down in the Tangier Sound, the grasses are a, a, about a month behind where they should really? be. They're, they're there, but short. Possibly having to do with all the amount of rain and the runoff? Could be. Mm -hmm. I, I think in talking to some of the watermen, they were, they were a questioning why they weren't growing as well. They mm -hmm. were wondering whether a, a recent northwest wind, big storm that we had about three weeks ago had had an issue with it, whether it uprooted some grasses during that particular storm. Mm -hmm. uh, but some of the upper bay grasses, I was on the Chester yesterday, and there were grasses growing in some of the back coves there, mm -hmm. just as beautiful and as lush as as it's supposed to be, as it's supposed to look. Well, and I, I literally just this morning got an email from one of our trustees who has a place at the mouth of the Rappahannock, and he said, I haven't seen grasses off my dock in 25 years. This spring, 
they've been as good as I've ever seen them all the way back to when I was a kid. Yeah. So it, 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 it's just, it comes and goes. Overall, we know the system is getting better. Like you said, there's a long way left to go. But grasses are um, mysterious in a way. Uh, and, and so much of the Bay's life is. They are. And, you know, you're talking about something, and I wasn't alive to see it, but in talking to my grandfather and, and some older uncles, talking about having to cut areas out in the grass bed so oh, that they could go swim. About exactly. Yeah. It was a... It was the, the bane of the water skier's existence, if you will, but having to c- mow areas essentially to to create swimming holes in these grass beds. was And to get the boat away from the dock, they'd clog up outboard motors right. and all the rest. I mean, to, we yearn for that now. To be so lucky, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but they, you're right. It, it's 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 a ecosystem and it's a habitat. It's a, that, again, to, can't stress it enough that we, we vitally need but they are fickle, and they, you know, different weather storms and or weather patterns and storms will have have an effect on individual grass beds from year to year. Well, I, I just remember one time out with you, with a uh, foundation head from a state outside of Maryland or Virginia. I'll, I'll I'll mention it, Pennsylvania, who came down and spent the day on the bay with us. And he was like a kid in a candy store, uh, looking at crabs, looking at oysters, looking at grasses. I mean, over and over and over we say, and why this is why your job is so important, is if we can get people on the bay, whether it's students coming out with their classes, we're taking 35, 40,000 a year, whether it's a principal, and once you've got the principal of a school, you've, you've really got the school, or whether it's, uh, Donors, uh, foundation heads, uh, elected officials, agency folks, getting them on the water is critical. And this is really what you're doing for CBF every day. It is. And is it any fun? I don't like to, uh, I don't want to broadcast it too too much, too far and wide. But it is, I do think I have one of the best jobs here. It's, you know, I still have the ability to, interface with the resource on a really regular basis multiple days a week i'm out on the water with different folks and their understanding and their knowledge base of the bay is far and wide some folks have years and years of experience some folks are just moving here and want to learn more about it but the ability to again put that resource in their hands front and center is is extremely valuable and i can't I uh, I can't stress it enough. We have an amazing treasure right in our backyard that all of us value, and and getting out and playing on it and experiencing that uh, really is a, is the best teacher out there. Invite me to come along a little bit more often, will you? <laughs> <laughs> I need to get out of the office. <laughs> all right. Well, noted. thank you very much for Bart Jager. This is Will Baker, president of Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Uh, check out our web uh, website at cbf.org. Uh, keep listening to the podcast and uh, send us an idea or two for a podcast if you have it from time to time. Thanks very much.